0: You're listening to New City Sermon Podcast. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep in God's Word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of His kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. So we're in a new series starting this morning. Uh, It's called Renewed People, New City. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we should live Uh, In our city, as we face brokenness, darkness, and oppression, and sometimes opposition. The question we want to ask is, how do we stay faithful to Jesus in our city? So we're going to look at the book of Revelation, not the entire book, but we're going to go through certain parts. And we want to get a glimpse of the heavenly city, the the new city, the new Jerusalem, uh, of which our church is named after, new city. And as we do this, it will renew us in our hope in our longing as a people for what's to come. Uh, but before we look at the new city, um, we want to look at how we should be living or how we should be as a church today. So we're going to look at two letters that um, Jesus addresses to two different churches, Smyrna and then Pergamum. And I've invited Ms. Runette to to read for us. So this is from Revelation 2. Woo! Yes. Revelation 2 verses 8 through 17.
1: Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Renette. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. And as we dive into it, I pray that you are just even now preparing our hearts to be able to receive. And Spirit, would you speak to us in the same way that you spoke to these churches all those years ago? And I pray that as a result, we would, we would learn as a community, as a church, what it is to be, what it is to be a faithful witness, So would you have your way with us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So it's coming up on basketball season, we're just a a few days away, and I know John likes to use soccer analogies, well, I'm a basketball fan, so we'll we'll go with that. Uh, But by far, without a doubt, the most exciting game I've ever witnessed as a Heat fan was game six of the 2013 NBA Finals. Where are you guys? Yes, yes. Renard, I know you've seen it. Um, so basically, if, if you're a Heat fan, you know, but this isn't Heat lore, but it's game six and it's the best of seven series. The Spurs are about 30 seconds away from winning and they're up five. So the Heat are down and the chips are stacked against them. If, if you're a betting man, You have about a 1.5 chance of survival if you were a Heat fan. And then a miracle happens. Roll the video. Should the Spurs foul? Should Miami go for the three right away? Just attack the basket. James catches, puts up a three. Long go. Rebound, Bosh. Back out to Allen. His 3 points. Yeah. Spurs do not have a timeout. But the you can cut it there. Yes. So, they, they, so, so they're down five, right? And then they make a three, they get a foul, and basically uh, they go one for two at the other end, and so that we come back and we hit that three. 5.2 seconds left. Unprecedented. And if you know the story, the rest is history. We take it to overtime, we actually win that game, game six, and then we win game seven, and it was the last time I felt good about being a Heat fan. But um, yes. But, but what happened, what was so interesting the next morning in sports news, it wasn't so much, I mean, everybody was talking about what they all witnessed. But there was uh, a certain set of people that actually, they got uh, the drop on. So there were other stories that came out about those um, who weren't there. So with 30 seconds left, um, they're down five, and there's about 1,800 fans to the exits, because they think their season is done. And so what happens is they leave and exit the arena, and by the time they find out that they've tied up and that they're going to overtime, they try to get back into the arena. Only there's one thing, you can't get back into the arena. And so they're outside now, and it's a crazy scene. They actually had to call the police to keep them away because it, it got pretty wild. And so you have a group of people, the rest of us, like we, we were so excited, and even if you weren't at the game, we watched about 15 of us from a 38-inch TV, uh, and it was just crazy. It was bananas. But I can imagine what it would have been like for those who missed that. On Twitter the next morning, they actually said that even those that were on the outside They would have lied and said that they were there and that they witnessed it when, of course, they they didn't. And I think about that. As we witnessed the greatest game in heat history, probably the greatest game ever, um, there were those that, that missed out. And so they missed what we all got to witness. They weren't faithful. But what does it mean to be a faithful witness? As a Christian, what does it mean to be a faithful witness? In in our shifting culture, where Christianity is seen as less and less on the side of bringing positive change to society, um, and especially where the odds are stacked against us, right? What does it mean to be a faithful witness? Do we accommodate ourselves and kind of go along with the culture? Do we stand out from it? Do we remove ourselves from what's happening in society, or do we be present right in the midst of that? Do we speak on issues like racial reconciliation, on things like politics, on things that are happening in the news, or do we remove ourselves from it? That's the question I think a lot of the church is talking about today. But what does it mean to be a faithful witness? In our passage today, in Revelation 2, we'll, we'll wrestle with this question by looking at these early churches and what it looked like for them to be faithful, and then ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to be faithful today? So basically, we start off with these these two cities, Smyrna and Pergamum, um, and Runet read about them, and they were a part of Asian Rome, and during this time in the first century, um, they had been colonized by Rome, I think we could say that, they were part of the Roman Empire. They're part of what's modern-day Turkey. And in these particular cities, um, they were deeply embedded in Roman culture. Now, in Roman culture, it was huge that you honored not just Caesar, but the Roman gods. And so in these particular particular cities, uh, they were the hotbeds of what was called the imperial cult. So you would have temples to these particular gods. You would have Zeus, um, Athena, all these different particular gods. And even in Pergamum, it was one of the first cities to erect a temple in honor of a living emperor. Most emperors in the Roman Empire were actually dedicated after their death. Pergamum was one of the first to honor a living emperor. And for Rome, it was big that you were loyal to them. In order to keep peace and to maintain unity amongst the empire, uh, Loyalty was was big for them, and so what they would do is that they would have these town gatherings in each of the cities and each of the states, and they would be held in these temples, and in these temples they would uh, burn incense, and in many instances they would sacrifice food to these particular idols. Now, these are part of something bigger, a bigger or- organization. We, they call them trade guilds, and, and maybe you've heard of that. But, but basically, the, the gist of it was, if you were in these particular societies, you were told to go to these social gatherings, these trade guilds, and you would talk about advancing trade and whatnot. But at the same time, because they're held in these temples, you had to burn incense, and you, you had to eat food sacrificed to idols. It was your way of saying as we advance our trade, as I advance my business and my welfare, I'm also saying I honor Caesar. And I honor and I am loyal to the empire. To refuse to be a part of this would mean that you, shut, you, you cut yourself off from the social commonwealth. The only way I can describe this today is if you've ever seen um, what's been happening in the news recently in sports, again, um, is football. And if you've noticed, there have been certain athletes that what they've done is that during the national anthem before the games, they, instead of standing, they took a knee. And that caused a social stir. There's one particular quarterback um, that he had a statement that he was trying to make by taking a knee. And we won't talk, for the, we won't talk about the reasons why. But as he did that, the owners took notice of this. And then he was let go from their team, this is two years ago, and he hasn't been on the field since. In his wanting to make a statement, what he's actually done is he's cut himself off from the commonwealth of the NFL. This is what it would have looked like back then to to refuse to be a part of this trade guild. And the thing about being a Christian is that if you're a Christian, you you could not in good conscience light this incense to honor Caesar as Lord or eat this food. You just couldn't. And so many times they wouldn't participate, which would call into question their loyalty, their loyalty to Rome. Now, the only group that was exempt from this were, were the Jews. The Jews weren't necessarily lo- known as Roman citizens. And some people what would actually say is that they paid off Rome with a large sum of money so that they can be left alone. Now, fortunately for some Christians, is that because they met in the same spaces, these synagogues, a lot of Romans confused these Jews or these Christians for being Jews. But in other cases, to make an example out of them, if they were singled out for not being loyal to Rome, they were actually persecuted. In some cases, they were tortured. In other cases, they were put in prison. And then in some cases, they were openly uh, shamed and publicly executed. This is an early mosaic of um, a scene where Christians were brought in front of the empire and before the masses publicly tortured. So this is what it would have looked like for the first century church. This is what it would have looked like in both places, in Pergamum and Smyrna. So these two letters Jesus addresses to these churches. And John is recording them. So Jesus is speaking, and John is writing. Now, as Jesus is addressing these churches, you you notice, as Runette was reading, that he has something to say to Smyrna that sounds different from Pergamum, right? Two different messages. Both churches are suffering, and, and Jesus is fully aware of both. But with Smyrna, the message sounds a lot more... Encouraging, he's basically telling them to remain faithful. Whereas in in Pergamum, he actually calls them to repent. And they're both wrestling with this question of, what does it mean to be a faithful witness of Jesus? But the two churches are living quite differently. So let's take a a look at the first church in Smyrna. So in Smyrna, if you read, the Christians were facing hostility. From the Jews, actually. And so what happens is that the Jews had begun expelling them from the synagogues. So now they have no more cover. Before they used to be able, as a Christian, to meet in the synagogue, the Romans Romans might actually um, mistake them for being Jews. And now the Jews were telling them, you have no more place here. You cannot meet here anymore. Not only that, but they were slandering them in front of the Romans, and so now they were singling them out. So if you're a Christian, now you're vulnerable and you're open to persecution. So Jesus says that I know. I know about those who say that they're Jews and are not. But they're actually a synagogue of Satan. He's calling the Jews that call themselves Jews, they're not actually Jews. He's calling them a synagogue of Satan. Because if they were really true worshipers of God, they would have invited them into their space. But because they didn't, Jesus has some harsh words for them. Jesus says, I know about what you're going through. I know about the suffering. And as they were put out there, even still, these Christians, they refused to participate in these religious cults. Obviously, it called into question their loyalty to the Roman Empire, and many of them have been persecuted. And I can imagine that there are some that even started to wonder whether we should hit the exits because it's not looking good for us. But Jesus has not left his church alone. Jesus loves his church. See, these are his people. These are the same people that he died for, that he purchased, and that he called out of the world to be a part of his people, his kingdom. So what you hear in in Jesus' letters is actually his heart for the churches, for both of them. And in both letters, Jesus is saying, "I, I, I know what you're going through. In all of your suffering, I am intimately acquainted with all that you're going through. I know what you're about to suffer. He tells them that some of them are going to be thrown in prison for 10 days. To the other church, he says, I know that you've, been, you've remained truthful to my name. Jesus knows all that is going on. And, and here's the, 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 the positive for us, if I can. What he says to the church in the first century is the same thing he says to the church today. See, it may surprise some of us, but the church is actually in decline here in America. And some Christian leaders and thinkers are actually, they're worried because many church pastors are not talking about the fact that they're in decline. Their own churches, even megachurches, it's almost as though they don't want to, they, they don't know their reality, or they refuse to acknowledge it. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus knows exactly where we're at. He knows what's happening in our world. The cultural shifts that are taking place, they didn't catch God by surprise. And so Jesus knows exact, like, exactly where we are in this cultural moment. And he hasn't looked at our decline and blamed it on us and said, you fix it. No, Jesus is with us because Jesus loves his church. And so we can look to that as hope. Jesus is intimately involved. And so he tells the church in Smyrna not to be afraid of the suffering that's coming. Now, he's letting them know that this is a spiritual battle. It's, it's something deeper than just on the surface. what he says here, he actually says that it's the devil that will throw some of you in prison, not the Jews and not the Romans. It's actually these forces of darkness working against us, and that's what's going to be perse- like your persecution. It's something more deeply spiritual. Jesus even appoints, like, heavenly angels to deliver this news to the churches, that they're not just to be messengers, but they're they're to fight their battles as well, to intercede for them. And the opposition today is much of the same. It's not people that don't think like us and that are opposed to us as Christians. It's actually another work at force. It's something that's deeply spiritual that as a church we should start to acknowledge and press deeper into. It's a spiritual thing. And now Jesus could stop this evil from coming. He's more than powerful. Surely He could do that, but He doesn't. Instead, He tells His church to remain faithful, even to the point of death. If you were reading this letter in the first century, you would know that Having read this, he's basically saying, there's some of you guys that are going to die. And yet, that's where Jesus wants to meet them. Jesus identifies himself in verse 8 as the first and the last who died and came to life again. He was talking about resurrection. He's referring to himself as the resurrection. Now, there's a group of people that are knowing that some of them are going to die. But Jesus is offering them comfort because only the one who is resurrected and who is himself the resurrection could offer hope for his people that are suffering. And he wants to give those who remain faithful this eternal life, this crown, this victor's crown that is in itself life. And he even says, those that conquer will never be hurt by the second death which means that some of them may face the first death. Some of them may actually even hurt in their first death, but not the second. If we read later in Revelation 21, that is talking about this condemnation. Those that have rebelled against God, those that have uh, committed uh, acts of sin, but who are ourselves sinful and have turned away from God, wanting nothing to do with God all their lives, will be thrown into the lake of fire. But Jesus says, to those that have been faithful, they will never experience a second death. We now turn to the next church, Pergamum. Now this church, Jesus says, has remained true to his name. Even when others were put to death in their city, he mentions this one name, Antipas, who was a faithful witness, and it cost him his life. And despite all of this, you read that Jesus has a few things to say about this church. He actually has a few things against them. It seems that some of them were giving into different kinds of teaching, that they were giving into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. And they make references to this Balaam and Balak and and what is all that? Revelation is kind of a tricky and it's a weird book to read. It doesn't necessarily make sense. But if you read it carefully in light of all of Scripture, what you notice is that he, John actually borrows a lot of symbols from the Old Testament. And so Balaam would have been a prophet that taught the, the Midianite king to, to seduce these Israelites back in the day. As they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, what happens is that he has these Midianite women tempt the Israelites to draw them away from the covenant of their Lord. And because of that, they fell into sin. They slept with them. And Jesus was angry with them. So in one day, God had uh, killed, destroyed 23,000 of them because of their disobedience. Now, remember those trade guilds that we talked about that were put on by the Roman Empire? What's highly likely is that these same Christians in Pergamum, they were giving themselves over into these trade guilds. There's not the same Jewish population in Smyrna as there was in Pergamum, And so they had to find a way to keep peace with Rome. All of this points to the fact that they tried to accommodate themselves to the culture. They had in some way believed that you could be faithful to Caesar and still be faithful to Jesus. That you could eat food sacrificed to idols and in the same breath have communion with the Lord. They had the coexist bumper sticker on their carts. And although it's only some of them, Jesus says, I, I'm coming to you, and if you don't repent, I'll come to you and fight them. Which means that he's holding the entire church accountable. Because this teaching, this teaching didn't just creep in, it was allowed in, and they did nothing to it. There was no accountability, there was no warning. Now it's important to know that even for Pergamum, as a church, a church who is compromised, Jesus still loves his church. So he tells them to repent. Sometimes we don't like that word, and and many times we don't use that in everyday language. What repentance means is actually a turning away from, to change your mind, to change the way that you're thinking. And so if we lived a certain kind of way, upon conviction from God, we actually turn from that and we turn towards him. And that's what Jesus is calling them to, to repentance. And what you get about this, especially in this letter, is that Jesus is really zealous for his own word. He opens up by calling himself the one with the double-edged sword in his mouth. Towards the end of it, he, he, he uses that same word, sword, again. And, and what is that? Is Jesus coming to church with a sword, you know? He's actually saying this symbolism that's, again, being used throughout the New Testament, The the, the sword was actually the word of God. And so he's actually saying, I'm coming with the word. Why would he be coming with the word? Unless the church had strayed from the word and didn't know what it was. So this very same church that should have been rooted on the word had strayed itself from the word. And so Jesus is saying, I'm coming to you with this same word. Because they had drifted. And Jesus promised that if they conquered, he would give them a white stone with a new name on it, which is a symbol of adoption. He'll bring them into his family, and all will be beautiful. But in both letters, in Smyrna and in Pergamum, he has different things to say. To be rooted, one of the things about New City is we put, one of the things we value is being rooted in God's word, in the gospel word. And so as a people, we come together and we hear the gospel being proclaimed throughout service. And we try to teach our people to understand the word themselves to be able to share the gospel with them and to remind themselves daily about the beautiful work that God has done for us. But in both letters, he's saying towards the closing He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in this same invitation, the Spirit is again telling us in 2018 listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To us as new city. And the question again is what does it mean to be what does it mean to be a faithful witness to Jesus in our day? I think what we've seen in these two churches is that to be faithful means that it's going to come with a cost, that it's not cheap and it's not free, and it doesn't look the same for everybody. The difference between the two churches is whereas Pergamum thought that they can get off and accommodate themselves, Smyrna said, no, we will not. We cannot, in good conscience, take part in the Roman cult and still remain faithful to Jesus. Smyrna had said that we will be the faithful witness. Some were going to be thrown into prison, others experiencing a severe affliction. Some may even have died because of that. But they would not waver. And they weren't going to run to the exits when things got bad. And we have to ask ourselves why. And it's because they had the word. Because they knew the God of the word and they knew what God has done for them. They knew that God was faithful to them in sending his own son on behalf of them to die in their place. See, here's the thing. Jesus sometimes calls us to hard things, and it doesn't look the same for everybody. To be a Christian here in America doesn't look the same as being a Christian in Somalia or in Malaysia. But the I think the thing that we can find comfort in is that Jesus doesn't call us to things that he himself hasn't done already for us. Think about it. Jesus came to this earth. He abandoned the comforts of heaven. He came down here and he experienced ridicule, rebellion, betrayal, and even death. He did that at great cost to himself to ransom for himself a people us. And Jesus took on this great cost because of his love for us. And in return, he calls us now to be a faithful witness, where it will cost us. And again, that looks different for everybody. As many of you guys know, I work for a ministry called InnoVarsity Christian Fellowship. Whoop whoop! Anybody? Anybody? Uh, many connections here in this church, of which I'm glad. Um, so, it's a campus ministry, we're reaching about 700 campuses across the nation. In late August of 2015, um, we, as an organization, we, we began to have these talks about sexuality. Um, apparently there was a, a minority that believed that they could continue um, to live this Christian life and, and be uh, not just same-sex sex attracted, but, but homosexual and serving in this ministry. And it was a weird place for us because we knew the culture was shifting, but we just didn't really know how to address that. As an organization, we had always held to like this orthodox belief that homosexuality, according to the Bible, is a sin and that we recognize marriage as a union between a man and a woman. So the leadership, they, they put out this human sexuality paper to send out to all the staff. And what happened was the supervisors were going to sit with their staff and kind of talk about what this is and whether they're all in agreement on that. And so that happened in talks during the summer of 2016. And the idea was that if you had any issue with that or any any kind of disagreement, um, you would sign the statement. um, Or if you didn't, uh, you wouldn't sign the statement. If you did agree, you would. But if you didn't, you wouldn't sign the statement. And they would start voluntary uh, firing extermination, asking you to leave staff, and the rollout would have been November 1st. And that's when someone from the inside took our internal document and we took it to, they took it to Time Magazine, and we got blasted in that magazine in October of 2016, and it was hard. That was a hard season for us. I remember hearing things that were said amongst staff, a lot of times that was on social media, back and forth. We had a Facebook page among staff, and we were warring with each other. Um, From the outside, we lost quite a bit of donors and donor support because of people that were well-meaning, but they weren't quite Christian, and so they questioned what was going on. Probably what hit me the most was the vision amongst us as staff, as ministers of the gospel to students on the college campuses, where in many cases, the, the people that I respect, and I respect their voice, and I have their books, and I've read their books, they actually blasted us for our position. And it called me into question, like, what what are they believing? What, like, am I wrong? Are, are they wrong? What, what's going on? And it drew me back to the Word. But it was a, a hard period for us, because we didn't know how to navigate through this, and we knew that this climate was changing, and we as an organization were asking ourselves, what does it mean to be a faithful witness? And we stood our ground. We stayed firm, and we understood that our position was the position that was always held by the church, historically. So why should we get any backlash? And yet we did. Some of us are still feeling it today. So as a church, Where in our city do we need to be faithful witnesses of Jesus? What are some areas of evil and injustice where we can be a faithful witness as a people of God? As we talk about this renewed city in the weeks to come, this this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem, having that hope, what would it look like to live faithful now in light of our future? Let the Spirit speak to the church. and Where do we need to repent? Where have we compromised? Where have we accommodated ourselves in the stream of the culture? Tim Keller, he was a former pastor in New York. Um, John, I think you posted this this week. Um, He had an article um, that he wrote for the New York Times titled, How do Christians fit in a two-party system? They don't. And he basically says that while believers can register under any party affiliation and be active in politics, they should not identify the Christian church or faith with a political party as the only Christian one. And what he does, he aligns the Bible with different positions. So he would say, okay, so Democrats are for the poor, but Jesus was for the poor. But Jesus was also for marriage, which is a Republican issue. And so Jesus does not necessarily fit in any of our categories. And basically, um, it brings out a lot of allegiances that are not Christian. And as I've seen and been a part of different churches, I've seen allegiances that churches have with certain party affiliations that are It's not biblical. I remember the Wednesday night Bible study we had last week as we were talking about reconciliation and just the pain that it brought to be able to, to, uh, how deeply divisive politics can be within the church and all the pain that that caused. But the truth is that Jesus doesn't fit in any one political party. And maybe that's how we've made it out to be because we've made an idol out of politics. This may not be much of New City, but it may be some of us. And that's one issue. But what would repentance look like for us? What would repentance look like for you? Where have we compromised our witness for the sake of accommodating to culture? this is what the Spirit is is calling us to. And I can imagine that there may be conviction or there may be even some shame and guilt. And to that, I I just want to say that Satan is an accuser. And he'll make you feel worse by accusing you for all the things that you've done wrong or that you've thought. And maybe this is the first time you're hearing some of this stuff. But I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says to both of these churches, and he tells them to the one who conquers. What does it mean to conquer? What does it mean to be victorious? If you can put that last scripture up. In, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, he, he actually makes this, this, there's this poem where they're writing, and, and basically this, the church is triumphant. It's the triumphal kind of entry of the church. And he says, they have conquered, we, the church, Have conquered him, have conquered Satan from his accusing, from his accusations against us, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even to the point of death. How do we conquer and how do we get over the accusations that we may be feeling? How do we draw into conviction? How do we draw into repentance and not into despair? It's by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony by knowing that you have been washed and that that, that blood was costly. It cost us the life of Jesus' It cost Jesus' life. But in the same sense, he did that out of love for us, that we can be a renewed people with a renewed hope. But in the same sense, now he's calling us to be a faithful witness, to hold firmly to the testimony. So as we think about what it means to be a faithful witness. Let's pray that the Spirit continue to draw us in. I'm gonna pray for us. If you have any questions or you wanna talk further after service, I'll be in this room here. There's a bunch of couches and we can talk further about what it means to be a faithful witness. But let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. And I ask that as you've done a work in our hearts, as we've wrestled with that question, Lord, allow us to see where have we compromised? Where have we accommodated to our peers around us, to uh, maybe our jobs, maybe our social norms, maybe this American dream? And what would it look like for us to repent? And Jesus Where do we need to be a faithful witness in our city, in our day? With all of this divisiveness, with all the things that are being said in the news, with all this uh, despair and opposition, what does it mean to be faithful? Jesus, would you help us? We ask this in your name. Amen.